Hello, and welcome back. This week for episode 14, I'm joined by Lucy Groves from Durrell Worldwide Trust, who's speaking with us about the successes of their White Store reintroduction project. But we go much further. Lucy describes the history of the bird in our islands, as well as some of the bizarre historical beliefs that go with it. She tells us about their fascinating and unique behaviour, why their presence is of such importance, and much more. If you like this episode and want to follow more of the work going on at Durrell, please follow the links in this description. And if you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreourplanet.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, and welcome back to Restore Our Planet podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. Here we are for episode 14, and I'm joined by Lucy Groves from Durrell Wildlife Trust. And yeah, Lucy, how are you? Good afternoon. Hi, yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining me. Thank so to kick things off, I thought we should crack on, really. So tell us about the, the store reintroductions that uh, work that you've been doing. Yeah, so um, I'm the project officer for the White Stork Project, which is based here in Sussex. Um, and the project began in 2016. Um, and we've been working on restoring a population of breeding white storks. Uh, and the aim is to have uh, 50 breeding pairs here in the southeast of England by 2030. Fantastic. And tell me a little bit why these are so significant, these, uh, these introductions. Um, so the white storks, um, are a native species. They were here, over, you know, last nesting record for this species is over 600 years ago. Um, they would have been fairly widespread, um, quite commonly seen and um, sort of sporadic breeders were quite north of their range. Um, but yeah, so one of the, the reasons for reintroducing them is not only to restore a, a missing species, but to use them as, uh, as an emblem for nature connection and for rewilding because they're such an iconic species. Fantastic. And so what caused their decline in numbers? Um, so the history isn't hugely known as to why we lost them completely. A lot of it is down to their breeding ecology. So they're really faithful to their nesting sites with pairs returning to the same nests every year. And they have something called natal phylopatry, which means that they will return to where they've hatched as well. So once you lose those breeding colonies, then they will return, but they don't return to breed. So what we think happened is that they were wiped out um, due to a, a number of things. They, they were hunted, they appear on banquet lists in the medieval times, um, and they were persecuted quite heavily as they were seen as a, seen as a sign of rebellion during the, the civil wars. So um, we think that they were stamped out during that time to kind of push down the, the rebellion. So once you've lost that breeding colony, um, we get sort of, 20 or 30 vagrants visiting the UK every year and have done for, for a number of years. So they've been removed from the rare birds list and that because they've been turning up so often, but because we've lost those breeding grounds, they don't stay to breed. So that's the idea of our reintroduction. Right. Just go back to something you said that you said they were persecuted as a sign of rebellion. Yeah, so they were taken on by the rebellion um, as a sign of rebirth. And um, yes, yeah, so they were used as the symbol, basically, to drive that movement. Um, so, yeah, they were stamped out kind of by the crown, we think. There, there is some evidence, not a lot of evidence, but that's one of the theories behind behind it. Oh, okay, so they're obviously quite a, an interesting uh, species in terms of their behaviour. Would you mind sort of telling us a little bit about their sort of characteristics and what they get up to? 
Yeah, so like I say, they're really faithful to where they nest and to where they've hatched. Um, but they're a, a generalist wetland, floodland, floodplain kind of species. They, they like uh, wet grasslands or areas that are periodically flooded. They're very generalist, again, in, in their feeding. So predominantly they're eating things like insects and earthworms make up a huge part of their diet. But they'll eat fish, small mammals, reptiles, amphibians, anything that they could, they come across, basically. But normally it's insects. Um, and they are spread across Europe, but they migrate south to um, Africa every year um, for the winter and then return to their, their nesting grounds um, in the spring. So they move huge distances. Um, they're the species that taught us about migration. So, uh, you know, we used to think that birds went to the bottom of oceans over the winter or bottoms of lakes. Um, there were some articles written that said they flew to the moon over the winter because nobody knew where these birds were going. Um, but in 1822, a stork with a South African spear uh, through its neck turned up in Germany, still flying, still alive. Um, so they shot it down to have a look at it. Um, but it turned up and it was the first evidence that these birds were making long journeys. Um, I think you can uh, you can find that photo. I think it's stuffed now. Um, it is stuffed. It's in, it's in a museum in Germany. Right, right, um, right. Yeah. So yeah, and I think lots of these arrow stalks or field stalks, as they're known in, in Germany, have turned up since. Um, but so they basically taught us about migration, which is is pretty cool. Brilliant. I've also heard that they like mimicking machine guns. Yeah, so their bill cutter sounds an awful lot like like a, a machine gun. It's their only re it's the only thing only noise they make really. I mean, they hiss, but they don't vocalise at all. They don't have a song. Um, but yeah, they they clatter their bill together and it reverberates in their throat pouch, which makes a really really loud noise. And um, you can hear it here it, at net um, across across the wildlands, which is is really cool. And is that their form of singing why do they do it yeah basically so they use it um to pair bonds so both the male and female do it um but they'll do it together so they throw their heads right back um and do this bill clattering display but they do it as a threat display as well um but just from a couple of days old the chicks learn to do it too so the chicks do it for the parents which is really sweet brilliant and it's my understanding they also love the nesting on people's uh, chimneys and roofs yeah, so across Europe, that's their main sort of area for nesting these days. Um, so on the tops of buildings, um, in areas of Poland um, and, and across France and Germany, they're really, really popular. People absolutely love them. And they actually put platforms on their roofs to encourage the storks. We had a, a Polish film crew come and, and have a look at the storks when they nested for the first time. And um, the lady, the Polish lady, she said, you know, in their village, every roof had a stork platform and had a stork nest. People get really attached to their individual storks because they return each year. And she said, if, they, if you didn't have a stork nest on your roof, then there's something wrong with your family. It was very bad luck to, to not have a stork nesting on your roof. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really ingrained within their culture. Um, and that's something that we're, we're hoping, you know, to get going here again in the UK. I mean even though they haven't been here for a long time, we all know what a white stork is. We all know what a stork looks like. Yes. And we all know that storks bring babies. You know, yeah. it's still very much within our culture. Less so, but um, it's still there. Absolutely. Okay, so, so um, what role do they play in the in the ecosystem? What's, what, what, what's their, uh, what do they bring? 
Yeah, so, I mean, within the ecosystem, I mean, they're not ecosystem engineers. They're not going to completely change an area like, say, a beaver. Um, but they're part of that e that wetland ecosystem. You know, they're, they're eating various insects. And, but their nests themselves create these own little ecosystems. So in the large nests across Europe, there are actually um, other species use those nests. So things like house sparrows, tree sparrows and Spanish sparrows have all been noted to, to live inside stork nests, even whilst they're occupied by storks. Um, and uh, other things like parakeets and kestrels and, and all sorts of things. And also those nests can hold up to over 100 different species of plant seeds within them from where they're collecting materials. So the nests themselves provide quite quite a, a big part of, it, of an ecosystem. Yeah. Okay, would you mind telling us a little bit about their sort of breeding cycle and their sort of behaviour around uh, reproduction? Yeah, so um, the storks, I mean, roughly about now they're returning to, to their nests. Um, and they are rebuilding and, and repairing those nests. The, the same nest will get used again and again, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, taller and taller as they keep adding to it. Um, I've seen an image of one which is over two metres deep, which is pretty cool. Um, and the male generally returns first. A week or so later, the female will return. They'll re-establish their pair bond with lots of displaying and then start repairing and building on that nest. And um, they can mate up to 300 times within a, a season. Um, a lot of that is to do with the pair bonding. And it's also to let everybody else know that it's their nest and it's their territory. Um, the female will start to lay eggs um, a few weeks later. Um, and she will lay them asynchronously. So she won't lay a whole clutch all in one go. She'll lay them every other day, but she'll start incubating as soon as that first egg has laid. So when they're ready to hatch about 33 days later, they also hatch asynchronously as well. So you get the size difference um, with the chip. And do they breed every year? Yeah, so the female, um, well, both of the, the male and the female, they don't breed until they're about four years old. Um, but then they'll breed every year up until they're about 25 and they can live up to 30, 35 years old. So, right, so they're, not, they're not facing similar challenges like, um, like albatross and some of these, I think, was it like one egg every five years or something? Yeah, like that? yeah. So they'll breed every year and they'll have generally a clutch of four or five eggs, but generally sort of two chicks per, per nest will successfully fledge. Okay. The thing with the storks is, is because they're a migratory species, that first year, that, that first juvenile year, um, is the most critical stage. And that is when the highest mortality rates are. So only 30% of wild hatched juvenile white storks will make it past their first year. And that's mainly due to the migratory um, routes that they have to take. Right. I had someone um, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about the, the sea turtle survival rate and... Uh... <laughs> so it's a lot, uh, it's a lot better being a stork. It was sounds like I think the sea turtles are like one in ten thousand, or yeah. so. So the storks, are, they're on their way. It's okay. It's not looking yeah, too, too right, big. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Okay, so we've been talking about the reintroductions. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the sort of challenges? Maybe you've had some pushback or or uh, some unexpected uh, sort of obstacles. Yeah, so, I mean, the main thing with the storks and, and quite a lot of other reintroductions happening in the UK. Or it is the pushback, you know, should we be spending money on reintroducing these species or should we be focusing 
on species that are already in decline. And one of the things that we feel with the storks is that we can use them as a flagship, as an emblem for wetland creation, wetland restoration, which therefore helps other lesser obvious species. You know, it, using these large charismatic species to drive other conservation is something that I think works really, really well. Um, and yeah, I think it's a, it's a great way of, of doing it and getting, you know, the little brown jobs that don't quite get the, the fuss that they deserve, but using a larger, more notable species to be able to drive that um, conservation, I think, is, is something that, that can work really well if it's done right. Brilliant. Um, I've got a silly question. Uh, birds fly away. What's to stop um, these talks when you're introducing them just uh, taking off? Um, yes, yeah, so there, there's nothing really to stop them. I mean, that's that's the thing. Um, and, and with a migratory species as well, it's, it's are they going to come back? So we're doing the reintroduction in a very set way. We're following the methodology that was um, pioneered by a Swedish reintroduction for white storks. And it's three phased and it is quite a long process. Um, so the first phase is to have a, a static population of these white storks. And we do that by using rehabilitated but injured birds from the wild. So from Poland, we had a number of birds come. We've got three release sites here in the southeast of England where we've got these birds. So they're birds that cannot be re released back into the wild because they can't fly anymore, basically. Most of them, due to injuries in the wild, are missing wings and things like that. So they act as a magnet for any other birds that might be passing over. And within just a couple of months of having one of these small populations at net, we had two wild birds land um, in the enclosure. So it's a big six acre open topped enclosure where these birds are living. So, you know, they've got a fantastic range of habitat in there and it's a really, really lovely place for them to be. And they act like that magnet for any that might be passing over. They'll also act as a breeding colony as well once they hit sexual maturity and any of their juveniles will be able to fledge themselves from, from that enclosure. The second phase is to have a resident but free-flying population. So these are birds that, again, they've been rescued from the wild, rehabilitated, but can fly. And we hold them in pens for two winters before we release them. And that basically hefts them to the area. They think it's a really good place to be. And although they can explore and they do generally go and explore, they'll return to the area. And they form our resident breeding population that we now see at NEP, where we've got um, a number of, of the pairs actually breeding in trees um, around the estate. Um, and then the third phase is to establish that migratory population, and that's releasing these captive bred first year juveniles. So these juveniles are captive reared at Cotswold Wildlife Park, one of our partners. They breed them and then they come to the release site for a couple of weeks before we release them. And then they'll stay for a little bit, but then they have that urge, despite being reared in captivity, they have that urge to migrate south for the winter. And then two or three, sometimes four years later, hopefully they will return um, and breed themselves at our release site. So we haven't had any return yet, but we only started those juvenile releases in 2019. So this is the year, fingers crossed, <laughs> that we have one or two of them start making their way back to the UK. Fantastic. Good to hear. Okay, so obviously you're very, you're very, very busy. Would you like to tell us about some of the other projects you've got going on in the background? Um... Yeah, species so, to be, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I work as the, the project officer, but the, but the overall project lead for, for the White Stork project. 
Um, and I'm actually the UK programme manager for Doral Wildlife Conservation Trust, who is, is one of the main partners within the White Stork project. So I now manage all of our UK programmes, which are very few at the moment. Um, mainly the storks is, is the main thing. Um, it's our very first UK project. Um, we work around the globe with uh, other um, threatened species, saving species from extinction. Um, but at the moment, one of the other projects I'm working on in the UK is an English uh, wildcat um, reintroduction, hopefully. But it's in very, very early stages. Um, all of the, the projects that we're involved with are, um, you know, we have huge, um, big feasibility um, studies going for them to see if, if they're actually feasible. So looking at the eco ecology of the species um, uh, and looking at all the possibilities, basically. So, yeah, it's in the research phase at the moment. Fantastic. And how do wildcats uh, behave? Obviously, you know, they're not house cats, but what, what distinguishes them? Distinguishes them, sorry, from uh, sort of regular regular tabby. Yeah. So I mean, they're a bit bigger for a start, and they're a lot wilder. It's almost impossible to tame a, a European wildcat. Um, they have slightly longer teeth and longer claws, um, and they are amazing hunters. And they'll be hunting things like rabbits. And, and birds and stuff like that but uh, yeah quite different to to your average tabby cat really they're quite a bit quite a bit bigger but um you can you mistake them um but uh, it's got a lot to do with their their coat um uh, and uh, the markings on them that distinguish them from brilliant okay and on to doral quickly what makes doral stand out a little bit from uh, other sort of organizations and foundations out there so a few of the things that I think make Doral stand out is their absolute passion for yeah, saving species from extinction um, and the long term um, sort of outlook on, on the projects that they work with. So I think you know, a lot of conservation is it's obviously all driven by fundraising and fundraising that's available. So a lot of organisations and projects run for three, five years. Durrell, we look 10, 20, 30 years, you know, some of the projects that we've been working on in Mauritius, we've been working on for decades. And I think it's that long term outlook that really sets them apart. And it's the fact that we don't just swoop in, do it and leave again. We're kind of in it for, for the long haul, which I think is really good. But also they're just such a dedicated organisation. And personally, for me, they're such a fantastic team to work for. It's like a big family, which is really nice. Yes. You mentioned the Mauritius. Is that pink pigeons? So pink pigeons and the Mauritius kestrel. Yeah. Right, because I had someone on uh, a couple of weeks ago who said they saw half of the entire pink pigeon population Mauritius in one tree. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they went down to five, I think it was. Um, I'm not sure with the pink pigeons. But now I know that the Mauritius kestrels went down to just four individuals. So, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> but but it's a it's a good story. They've yeah. now recovered and they're now yeah. sort of in the tens and what well, more yeah. than that, I think hundreds perhaps. Yeah. Good, okay. Um so there you've mentioned sort of Darrell's kind of uh sort of future looking vision. What would you like to see over the next sort of ten years or so with this kind of this kind of work and reintroductions and, and wilding and obviously I know you're at NEP, which is a very uh you know famous centre for all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think what I really like to see in the next sort of 10 years or so is a lot more of the different industries and organisations working together. So like you say, you've got like your wilding, your rewilding, you've got your traditional conservation, you've got your farming and you're now sort of uh, regenerative farming and stuff like that. And I think if everybody pulled together 
um i think we could we could be on to a, a real winner um and i think the other thing is i just i'd love to see more of the nation getting more connected with nature and with wildlife and paying more attention to it and valuing it for you know what it what it really is worth yeah. can't do without it so of course i think that's really starting to happen as well it is yeah i mean i think especially with covid and all the lockdowns you know i've been working in nature conservation and public engagement for years and trying to get people outside and all we had to do was shut them in for a few months <laughs> and now they're all desperate to get out um but um it's nice to see more people out and enjoying walking and you know looking at nature and i think i just hope that that continues and that that, that trend kind of continues that way absolutely okay lucy if people want to sort of find your work or support you or hear what's going on with stalks where can they find you yeah, so you can find us at uh, thewhitestalkproject.org or you can find us on Twitter at Project Stalk. Um, so yeah, I do all of the social media and the website. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we should have some exciting news coming out as well. But that's all I can say for now. Fantastic. Lucy, thank you for your time. That's all right. You're welcome.